Let's take our Bibles and open them, turn in them, make our way to the particular passage of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We're going to finish the first chapter today. You guys all look so good in those new chairs, and uh, we're so grateful that they finally came in, and they're hard as a rock, but give them like a year, keep coming, and they'll be super comfy. They'll just be like form fit for you, right? So uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, uh, verses 18 through 31 in a message that I've entitled, Christ Crucified. And so, Lord, we just pray that you would uh, take our hearts and minds, the attention, Lord, that we have collectively captive, even in this moment, that we might set our hearts and minds on you. You've told us that the preparation of the heart belongs to man. And so, Lord, we take this moment... And Lord, we just still and ready our hearts. You said, be still and know that I am God. And so, Lord, as we still our hearts before you, we pray that you would speak to us, that you would move and minister among us. God, that you would work change into us for the glory of your name. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. Divided, defiled, disgraced. That was the condition of the congregation of the Corinthian church when Paul wrote this letter. It seems as though one sin situation after another was plaguing the people, and Paul was writing to put out the forest fires that were just blazing in their midst. And so after his initial introduction and words of encouragement, he immediately began to address the divisions among them. You know, different people aligning themselves with different teachers, each one thinking that they, that is the person doing the aligning, was a little more spiritual than the other for the one that they had kind of attached themselves to. But truth be told, you guys, and you well know, I just allow me to say it out loud, that uh, any kind of click, dividing into little clicks, regardless of who it may rally around, is in no way spiritual, but it's in every way carnal. And so Paul tells them, look, you need to share the same mind, the same heart, the same judgment. And it's not about the mind of Paul. It's not about the mind of Peter. It's not about the mind of Apollos. We're to have the mind of Christ. He's the one who was crucified for you. He's the one into whom we are baptized. And he's the one whom we preach. And listen, it's not that the pastor or the preacher shouldn't do his utmost and his due diligence to craft his words in such a way as to articulate and communicate his point to the very best of his ability for God's glory. But we don't attach ourselves to the eloquence of the individual. Rather, we're to be mindful of the message. And the message is the gospel. And we're to draw those who hear us to the cross of Jesus Christ. You see, the wisdom of words we learn will actually neutralize, it will actually sterilize the message, the cross of Christ. And that's what Paul was pointing out as we came to a close in our last gathering. That worldly wisdom, human philosophy, is actually opposed to and against the message of the cross. If you're there, you can look at verse 17 of chapter 1 where Paul plainly states that Christ sent him to preach the gospel, notice, not with the wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. Now look with me at verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm not sure that a more telling statement could be uttered with regard to where a person is at with God. It's where do you stand on the message of the cross? It's about as black and white, straight and simple, for or against as one might get. It divides humanity. It separates, you see, the saved from the unsaved. The message of the cross, it's either the most beautiful thing you've ever discovered or it's the stupidest thing you've ever heard. If you honestly and transparently evaluate it, you see. For the message of the cross is foolish 
to those who are perishing, to those who reject Jesus Christ. The idea of a man who evidently, who apparently couldn't save himself, uh, this idea of a man who couldn't save himself, saving them is about as ridiculous as it gets. I mean, you want me to believe that a man who was tortured, who was beaten, who was nailed to a cross in open shame and humiliation and left there to die can somehow save my soul. I mean, how stupid do you think I am, right? And how stupid are you for even believing or suggesting such a thing all the more for believing it yourself? Now, right, here we are, 2,000 years cross-culture and cross-continents removed, and we can speak of the cross, and to us it can seem almost noble. It certainly sound religious to our ears. You know, we place the cross on steeples of church buildings. We put it on our walls. <clears throat> we wear it around our necks uh, or perhaps on our ears as jewelry, perhaps one, or you've known someone, or maybe even you, you've tattooed it on your body. But you know, time and, and sentiment has completely sanitized its cultural impact. Ladies and gentlemen, the cross in the ancient world was anything but sanitary, and it certainly was not religious. It was not perceived as some sort of sentimental means of salvation any more than perhaps an electric chair is today, or a noose, or a gas chamber, or a lethal injection. I mean, let's think this through. Family, if you, me, one of us were to go into a jewelry store and there you are, you're browsing through the, the, you know, the case there and, you're, and then, the, then the sales associate comes over, can I help you? Yeah, I'm looking for a gold, maybe like a diamond studded, like a, a little electric chair to uh, wear around my neck, you know. I mean, when the people would think you were a bit morbid, maybe even macabre and certainly a bit deranged. But the cross in the ancient Roman world was an instrument of death well beyond the apparent cruelty of any of the above-mentioned uh, instruments that I just uh, laid out as an example for any of those means. Paul was preaching a message of salvation through the means of a man's death penalty execution. And not a dignified death, you know, as a Ro Romans were not even allowed to be. It was against the law to crucify a Roman. It was so undignified. It was so humiliating. It was so shameful, so disgraceful. No, 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 no. Jesus, you know, he did it. Paul wasn't preaching the message of salvation through a death penalty execution, you know, like something dignified, like beheading or something. No. But the shameful, humiliating, disgraceful death of the cross... And what message could a cruel, degrading, unrelenting instrument of death possibly have? It's no wonder that such a message is, well, the word is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is, notice, underline it, ladies and gentlemen, highlight it, it is the power of God. I want you to notice that the gospel or the message of the cross, right? Note verse 17 that the, the gospel, the message of the cross, they're one and the same. But the gospel doesn't teach us about the power of God, no, no, no. It's not somehow simply a, a demonstration of the power of God, no, but rather it is the power of God. It is the power of God. Somehow and in some way, God has caused the gospel, the message of the cross to have intrinsic, inherent power when it is received in faith. It will literally take you from being dead in sin to alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Come on. 
to the Romans, Paul put it like this, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Why? For it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. Come on, somebody. Say amen. If you want to experience the power of God in your life, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, not just like, oh, yeah, I believe that the man named Jesus lived and died. Maybe he rose again. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, yeah, but no, 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 no. Not from, not from your head, but from the heart. For with the heart, one believes unto righteousness. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. What he's done for you upon the cross. Believe the message of the gospel. Listen. Preaching a high moral standard, as noble as that may be, is not the message of the gospel. Uh, Preaching principles of a strong marriage, though perhaps needed, is not the message of the gospel. The universal brotherhood of man, that we all share a common creator, is not the message of the gospel. The gospel is the message of the cross. And to those who are being saved, oh, I hope it's welling up in your heart right now. It's a message that is both beautiful and brilliant. That God would become a man and as a man lead a perfect life and yet lay down his life on behalf of his creation as a sinless, spotless sacrifice for our sins. Family, ladies and gentlemen, he didn't die for any fault of his own. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was placed upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. It was for you, it was for me. Out of his great love for us. You've heard it before. He he paid a debt that he did not owe because we owed a debt that we could not pay. That's the love of God for you. Think about that. And before we move on, I want to notice here, I want you to take note of the verb tenses found in these two groups of people right here in our opening verse, verse 18. You're either, well, you know, the word is perishing or being saved. Note the present tense. Guys, it's not that you will perish, though that is a true statement. Nor is it that you will be saved, though that is true as well. But Paul is pointing out here that we're all, you and me, we, all of humanity, you see, is already on one of those two roads, okay? You are either alive to God in Christ Jesus or you are dead in sin, You're either on the narrow road that leads to life or the broad road headed for destruction. Family, we like to think of our friends and our family, those who don't know the Lord, they're out there kind of in some kind of neutral zone. At least that's what we try to convince ourselves of. Oh, we know they're not necessarily saved, but they're not perishing. No, 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 guys, that is not true. We need to be sober to the fact Why? That it might strike urgency in our hearts. That it might eliminate the hesitation, the reservation, the the sense of embarrassment or shame to share the gospel, you see. Guys, it's literally life and death. Not just here and now, but ultimately eternally, you see. We're either perishing or being saved. And it all hinges on where you stand with respect to the message of the cross. Now look at verse 19. For it is written, I will destroy... Actually, let's go back and read verse 18 again. It's such a good verse. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, 
But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Amen. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who, notice, underline it, believe. Guys, he's bringing into focus for us the comparison, the contrast between man's wisdom and the message of God's word. And since they are in opposition to one another, the warning, right, coming out of verse 17, is not to intermingle the two when presenting the gospel. The gospel alone, we have to be very clear about this in our understanding and execution, our, our, uh, how do you say, sharing the proclamation of the gospel. The gospel alone is the power of God unto salvation. We don't need to help it out, okay, through our ability to entertain the masses. Because when we try to help it out, we're actually hurting and hindering what only God can do through the message of the cross. Are you with me on that? It's no wonder that God says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent or, or the scholarly, you see. Now listen, God stands in opposition to the wisdom of this world. But I want to be very clear about something. When we speak of those who are, our word is wise, in this world, Understand, we're not speaking of, you know, or along the lines of academic achievement, okay? As if God is somehow angry with or against people who want to learn. Or he's somehow angered when there he is or there she is, the scientist, the mathematician. They, you see him, right? I mean, I, I probably personally have never seen it with my eyes. Perhaps you have if you're more educated than me, though I've seen it on TV, when you see the scientist or the mathematician and there they are against that giant blackboard. And man, they've drawn out an equation that probably maybe it looks like it took a month or more just to draw it out. And of course, that's when the janitor always comes in and sees it and then does this and wipes it off and they come in and their jaw hits the floor. You know, like I say, I've seen it on TV. But you know, God's not angered when there they are, they draw out the complex problem and at some point in his life or some point in her life or their career, they solve this problem, they draw this conclusion previously unknown to man. I don't, God doesn't get angry. I think, I think God enjoys such accomplishments. You know, the, the simple or, or perhaps not so simple discovering of objective truth. I mean, that's great. But Paul is speaking more along the lines of human philosophy, humanistic psychology and psychiatry, those who try to solve the deep pains and problems of man through human wisdom and reasoning rather than turning people to his word, to his ways, to his heart, you see. God will destroy the wisdom of this world. It stands apart from him. It stands in opposition to him. It tries to solve life's dilemmas apart from him. Do you understand what I'm saying? And so Paul says, in, in light of Isaiah 29, he, and it's kind of a free quote out of Isaiah 29, where is the wise? Where is the scribe, you know, the, the scholar, the, 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 the disputer or debater, you know, the one that likes to work it through of this age? And come on, Mr. Wise Guy, Mr. One who's able to debate every issue from whatever side you want to uh, stand on. Let's line your wisdom up beside God's wisdom and see how it measures up. 
Let's see what it's done for you, how it's truly, that is, eternally helped or transformed you. Well, it hasn't. Well, how do I know that? Because God has purposed in his wisdom that the world through its wisdom cannot know God. Now, again, that's not to say that being educated is a bad thing. It's a good thing. But we're to recognize that we cannot grow in a context that's spiritual through a means that's natural. Are you with me on that? you understand what I'm saying? We're not going to gain spiritual wisdom through natural means. God has made foolish the wisdom of this world. Friends, we need to recognize that when Paul is speaking of the wisdom of God and then the wisdom of man, that he is speaking on, of, of two, on two, totally different, two totally different things, okay? I mean, sometimes you and me, right, we can have this tendency to perceive, and, and you know, and I speak obviously in human terms because that's all I know, but, you know, the, the, the wisdom of God as nothing more than perhaps the wisdom of man, but multiplied to the highest degree, right? I mean, as if, for example, here you are and here I am. And we're like first day on the t-ball field. We haven't even had a t-ball game. We're just trying to learn to play the game. We're a little child stepping up trying to learn to, how to play t-ball. And, and like God holds every world record in the major leagues, right? Like there's this kind of gap. There's just this radical gap. of. Uh, but, but we're kind of, we're on the same level. We're both doing the same thing. I mean, we're both playing ball, right? I mean, we both have wisdom. But family, we need to recognize that the wisdom of God is of another order altogether than the wisdom of man. Okay? They're not even on the same scale. As God has said in Isaiah 55, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. They, they don't even register in the same way. We don't even reason along the same lines, you see. Not, no, he says, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth. Hey, and I, I don't want you just to think about like, oh yeah, I see some clouds. That's pretty high up there. I, I want you to think about like, like the heavens, like past the ionosphere, past the atmosphere, past the sun, the moon, the stars, past the Milky Way galaxy, all the nebula, on and on. The heavens, right? On and on and on go the heavens, okay? And for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Think about that. This is the God you serve. And so it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. I want you to notice that it's not foolish preaching that saves, okay? It's important that we kind of dissect or make that distinction, distinguish that, nor is uh, preaching foolish. He's not saying that either, okay? That's how we proclaim. It's how we make known. But the message that seems foolish to the wise of this world, that's how it appears. That's how the message of the cross appears to the perishing. Salvation through a crucified man simply sounds foolish, and God was well pleased to accomplish our salvation in a way that no one would have expected, that no one would have anticipated in a manner that offends the height of human wisdom. As Jesus said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for it seemed good in your sight to offend the height of human wisdom through the message of salvation through our crucified Savior. Verse 22, for the Jews request a sign and Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. But to those who are called, 
both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Now again, uh, let's understand that when Paul is speaking of the foolishness, the weakness of God, He's speaking, again, in these human terms this, in a manner to help us get a grip on his point. The fact of the matter is, is that there, there is no foolishness, there is no weakness in God, okay? But if the cross were the epitome of both, is what he's saying here. It's as if, like, since, since the cross is, is foolish to the wisdom of man, and that makes God's wisdom foolish. You see what I'm saying? He's reasoning along these lines. He's saying even so, even in that, the base level of God's wisdom and, and, and weakness transcends anything that man could ever comprehend or accomplish on his own. Okay? For the Jews request a sign. Now in Paul's day, the Jewish nation was living with a certain anticipation of the appearance that is the coming of the Christ, their Messiah. There was a heightened expectation and sense of anticipation, and it was an appropriate expectation uh, because he came. I mean, there he was, but they missed him. They didn't acknowledge nor receive him. Why? Well, because as we see here, as Paul uh, shares with us, they were looking for a sign. But guys, not just any sign, okay? Listen, you, you read that and you think, you know, the, the Jews were seeking a sign, and we go, I mean, Jesus did all kinds of signs, right? I mean, he fed thousands upon thousands into the 10,000s and beyond with just, a, you know, 10, 15,000 people, which is a, like a few fish and a handful of, of, of loaves, of, like a little boy sack lunch that he brought to come and hear this preacher from Nazareth. That's all they had. He fed them all. You know, on more than one occasion. He opened the eyes of the blind. He, he made the lame to walk. He cleansed lepers. He healed the sick. He walked on water. He, he calmed the raging sea and wind with just a word. I mean, he raised the dead on multiple occasions. The family, and you hear me say it regularly, the flesh is never satisfied. It's never enough. Okay, well then do this, you see. Listen to me, miracles, contrary to popular opinion, will not manifest faith. They feed that desire for more. But they were looking in reality for one specific sign. They wanted miraculous, messianic deliverance. That is, they wanted their Messiah to lead a military charge, conquer the known world, essentially, via crushing their Roman oppressors and placing Israel at the top of the global food chain. That's what they were looking for. Now, listen to me. The desire for deliverance is not a bad thing. It's a good thing. But their rejection of the deliverance that God was bringing to them that was the problem. They weren't looking for the message of the cross. They didn't believe they needed deliverance from sin. They were looking for deliverance from political oppression. They were looking not for humility, not one to save humanity through suffering and dying, you see. They, they wanted to see what we might consider stereotypical power and great glory. Again, from, from a conquering king, not a, not a, a, a meek lamb, a, a, a spotless lamb. I mean, how could anyone put their faith in an unemployed carpenter from Nazareth who died a shameful criminal's humiliating death? I mean, really? Does anything good come out of Nazareth? They didn't understand that the message of the cross is the power of God. It does bring deliverance not politically, eternally. 
strong enough to do something no man could ever do, bring salvation to all of mankind. For whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. The Greeks seek after wisdom. That is, they valued learning, typically expressed, again, in high academic philosophical terms, you know, logical conclusions and such. Uh, Someone has defined philosophy as a blind man in a dark room looking for a black cat that isn't there. (laughs) And, you know, man is still searching for some theory some formula that maybe scientifically or philosophically they will begin to get the answers to the questions of life, you see. It's grasping for wind. You'll never obtain it. And again, the desire for wisdom isn't bad, but the rejection of God's wisdom, you see, that that is, that's bad. But we, come on somebody, we preach Christ crucified. Oh, and may it always be so. Not a powerful political leader. Not one who would disperse wisdom according to the ways of this world something altogether unexpected, a crucified Christ. Think about that. It's the ultimate oxymoron. Christ crucified. Guys, you know what an oxymoron is, right? You're going, yeah, I'm looking at one. No, that's not. That is not. See where you've misunderstood. I mean, you get the moron part, but you forgot to add the oxy to it, right? No, this is, it, it, means, like, it means like contradiction in terms, okay? Um, uh, something is um, awful good, right? It's um, some, something or someone was found missing, right? Um, jumbo shrimp, you get the idea. Christ crucified. Family, the word Christ embodies power, splendor, triumph. Crucified points to weakness, defeat, humiliation. It truly is, when carefully considered, a strange message indeed. Listen to me, if you cannot see that, if you cannot see that the message of Christ crucified is truly a a, a strange message, then one of two things is in play. Either you don't understand the cross as it was seen in Paul's day, or you do not understand who Jesus is. There is a necessary tension that exists between the words Christ crucified. But this is the message that Paul preached, and by the grace of God, we will always be true to it as well. To the Jews, a stumbling block. To the Greeks, foolishness. Guys, if you know anything about Greek mythology, then you already know, right? Why would the Greeks see this as foolishness? You know, the idea of God leaving his throne, taking the form of a servant to to save his creation by dying for them, absolutely absurd. I mean, Zeus is never going to lower himself to serve and save his creation, you see. But God does not work on the basis of popular opinion. He doesn't respond to the polling data. He he stays true to his purpose, his position, his plan through the means of the cross. Because to those who are called, whether you're Jew or a Greek, that is Jew or Gentile, okay, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Salvation 
is not an achievement of human wisdom. It's the embrace of God's dramatic, unexpected act of love at Calvary. So, so here we are. And we're, and we're not too far from finished, but here we are. Exhibit A of God's foolish wisdom, Christ crucified. Exhibit B, oh, this was a good one. He called you, and he called me. Look at verse 26. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen. And the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are. Notice that no flesh should glory in his presence. Stop right there. Paul points out that God has a pattern, okay? There's a pattern that God has of doing things in a way that is counterintuitive to worldly rationale. And we see this, right, throughout Scripture. Now, of course, he doesn't say that, you know, not any wise or noble are called. Paul himself was a scholar, trained under one of the most renowned rabbis of his day. But he says, not many. Not many. And again, it's not saying that God typically calls dummies, <laughs> though I'd certainly qualify in that context. But that he doesn't generally move in a way that's typical or in a pattern that's predictable according to the standards of the world. That's the way you and me think. You and I think. You see, I don't know. I think it's you and I. Thank you. But, uh, you know, here we are. We think, wow, if so-and-so famous were to be saved, man, that'd make a real difference. Wow, if so-and-so high on the political platform, man, they could really make it. And this is the way we think. God doesn't think like that. And now, it's, again, it's not, not that there won't be any, right? Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But when you look back through Scripture and you consider guys like Abraham, Joseph, Moses, David, Gideon, these guys that we think, man, I mean, or look, even... even the 12 that Jesus called. When you go through and find what they were doing, who they were, where they were, what was going on when God called them, it's like none of them were exactly the who's who of their day. You know, as, as we like to say, they were the who's he. I mean, they were nobodies. They were runts. They were shackled in fear. They were day laborers. People like you and me that God took and raised up and made incredible men out of them. That's what God likes to do. Guys, we like to think of ourselves more highly than we ought. We're, we're no great find. We think things we shouldn't. We say things we shouldn't. We do things we shouldn't. And it confounds the wisdom of this world. People can't figure out how God can take sinners. Anybody here sinner? Anybody qualify? Come on. How God can take sinners, transform their lives, and turn them to saints. They can't figure this out. You know, you were so self-centered, and now there you are. You're serving others. You know, you had a foul mouth. Now you don't even, you don't cuss at all. They can't even get you to join in the dirty joke circle. You drank all the time or you got high now and then or all the time and now you're clean. Now you don't drink. God's done an incredible work and everyone knows that it wasn't you because they know you. It had to be Jesus in you. 
And that is exactly what God is aiming for so that he alone gets the glory. Guys, if at the end of the day, people think that, well, you know, what you've done in, in your life change is really great, well, then we've erred. Wow, man, what you've done there is really great. Well, then I've missed the mark. But if people think, man, if God can do that for him, if God can do that for her, then surely he can do it for me. Well, now you're on point, you see. This is what Jesus was talking about when he said, let your good works, let your light so shine, you see, so that when people see your good works, they glorify your Father who is in heaven. Not, wow, you've really done great for yourself, but man, if God can do that for them, maybe he can do it for me. And guys, it's not that God is so egocentric that he needs the attention. It's that people shouldn't look to me for the answer because I can't help you. He can, he can help you. So you turn to him. Salvation is of the Lord. And to keep the context, going back again to our previous portion in the early you know, introductory uh, remarks in the chapter, salvation is of the Lord. It is not of Paul. It is not of Peter. It is not of Apollos. No flesh, see that? No flesh will glory in his sight. To God be the glory, great things he has done. Can we say amen? amen. Okay. But of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that as it is written, again, underline it, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. You see, the wisdom of this world will not get you to God. And so Jesus becomes for us wisdom from God. Are you tracking? He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. And no one comes to the Father except through him, the wisdom of God, you see. But not only wisdom, Jesus is righteousness for you, okay? That is, in Christ, God hasn't only said to the negative, not guilty, though that would be great. But to the positive, he has said, you are righteous. All the righteousness of Christ has been accredited to your account. That should do something in you. And redemption, that is purchased to permanent freedom. Guys, I don't know how else to say it. Freedom is not found in somehow focusing on self or simply trying harder, okay? Yeah, you know, um, it, it might, it might uh, you know, you might stop a bad habit, but you won't be free. True freedom is found in Christ, and whom the Son sets free is free indeed. Guys, Listen, Jesus is for you sanctification. Uh, this, this speaks of our behavior. Set apart from the world unto God. Sanctification, it's not, it's not achieved by focusing on self, but by abiding in Christ who is for you sanctification. It's Christ in you. Listen to me, guys. The path leading to God's glory is Christ crucified. What is your boast today? Think about that. You know, what is it that you boast in? Maybe we would say proud of. I mean, your studies, the letters behind your name, athletic accomplishment, your trade work, your wealth. You know, maybe how, how you're real family-oriented and you just pour into your family with regularity and consistency. 
I mean, are those things bad? No, not at all. But I'm just telling you, listen to me, I'm telling you. It's, it's like when we talk about the wisdom of man and the wisdom of God. They're not even on the same. They're not even, it's not even fair to compare. They're not even on the same spectrum. Even so, guys, listen, you've studied hard. You've got your doctorates. You've got your masters. Whatever the case may be, you're incredible at the trade work that you have uh, spent so much time in. You pour your family. These, you're, you know, you've worked hard. You've made lots of money. Good, good for you. But those things aren't even in the same spectrum as Christ crucified. He is our everything. Our all in all. If we're going to glory, let's glory in the Lord. We'll close with this. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man glory in his might, nor let the rich man glory in his riches, but let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth, for in these I delight, says the Lord. Amen. God, we thank you for the ready reminder of your holy word today. Shake us out. I just pray, God, that you would just shake us out of the cobwebs of religion. And that you would renew in our hearts the wonder of the cross. Christ crucified. God, may it always be our clarion call that we be diligent about steering away from worldly wisdom, crafty techniques, entertainment-based ideologies, and stay true to the message of the cross. Father, we thank you for your love. Salvation found only by grace through faith in Jesus Christ our Lord. I would just say that while we're here and our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, you may be thinking through, meditating on some of the things that we've spoken of today. Don't try to figure it out. Don't think you can somehow obtain it or if you're good enough, maybe you can, you can achieve it or somehow merit it. I'm telling you, just humbly receive it. The work of Jesus Christ upon the cross for you. God loves you. Jesus laid down his life for you. And if you will turn from your sin and trust in him today, the power of God will go to work in you. From death to life, washed clean in Jesus' name. Is that you? Listen, I don't care where you've been or what you've done. I don't care how old you are, how young you may be. I don't care, you know, who you came here with, again, where you've been, what you've done, whatever. All I care about is do you, truly now, transparently, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ What is the message of the cross to you? If it's beginning to radiate for you, it's transitioning in you from something that seems so silly to something beautiful and brilliant. 
And God is calling you. And I want to pray for you. And I'm going to ask you just to show me who you are. Again, no one's looking around. I'm not trying to embarrass you or call you out. I just, I just want to pray for you. And if you're ready to receive the Lord today, then I'm just going to ask you to just lift your hand. Don't worry about anything else. Just lift your hand. And if I see it, I'll say it. You can put it back down. But uh, I just want to give you a second to think this through. I see it. Well, so the Lord just, just speaking to your heart today. Father, we're just so grateful for the simplicity of the message that brings salvation. That you've done it all. And, and we can do nothing. But Lord, just humbly receive. Our life is yours. We're just praying, God, that you would take us and mold us and make us more like Jesus. That you would Lord, strengthen our resolve that we, that we be not ashamed realizing that this world only has two kinds of people, those being saved and those perishing and Lord, that that would, that would just strike urgency in our hearts. And we thank you for every open door, every opportunity. Help us to be faithful stewards of the message of the cross. Family, I'm just allowing a brief moment here. I'm just taking my time so that you might marinate in the Word of God, that you might allow the Spirit of God to work change in your heart and in your life. I just, I beseech you that you not, don't, don't, don't be distracted from this moment. Don't think, man, when we're done, we're really going to, you know, go eat here or do this or whatever. Just give God the attention of your heart. Be still. Perhaps he's drawing to your attention that, that area. You know, you know that area that you, you're pretty sure no one else knows about, but God knows about. Why don't you give that to him today? It's not worth it. For whatever that's worth, maybe that's for you, just know it's not worth it. <sighs> Thank you, Lord, for, for meeting with us today. We bless your name. In Jesus' name. Amen.